0: Here's a question. When was the last time you considered your unconscious biases? Have you ever? It's okay if not. Most of us haven't. But here's something interesting to note. Whether we take the time to examine them or not, they do affect us every single day. Maybe in small ways, getting passed over for a promotion, being spoken down to by your peers, or in the case of my guest today, getting your work overlooked.
1: I I was surprised. Um, I was dis- I was really disheartened, to be honest. It made me feel discouraged. Um, simultaneously, you know, while I was simultaneously placing pieces in like high-profile publications, it made me feel discouraged because it made me feel like I guess the way to succeed is to conceal who I am.
0: Or maybe you've been the perpetrator choosing to cross the street at night when you see a person of color coming towards you or subconsciously discounting what a female colleague has to say. No matter how it affects you, it does affect you and it can cause huge problems in your life and in larger society. That's why, for the next two episodes, we're going to talk about how to end it. And the answer? Well, you already know the answer. Because this is Tiny Leaps Big Changes. <laughs> My guest today is Jessica Nordell. Jessica Nordell is a science writer, award-winning author, and speaker known for blending rigorous science with compassionate humanity. Her first book, The End of Bias, A Beginning, won the Nautilus Award and was shortlisted for the Columbia Journalism slash Lucas Prize for Excellence in Nonfiction the New York Public Library Bernstein Book Award for Excellence in Journalism, the Royal Society Science Book Prize, and the National Association of Science Writers Book Prize. The End of Bias was also named a Best Book of the Year by the World Economic Forum, Greater Good, the AARP, and Inc. Magazine and is currently being used by organizations from newsrooms to NBA teams to healthcare organizations to solve some of their biggest cultural challenges. Now, this is the first of a two-part conversation on bias, so if you're interested in this topic, be sure to tune in tomorrow to catch the second part. So, without further delay, here's part one of my conversation with Jessica Nordell. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Uh, so the book is called The End of Bias, A Beginning. Um, I actually wanted to start on, like, that's a a really big promise. And <laughs> you do clarify, like, okay, this is the beginning of that. But do you really think that that's possible?
1: You know, I it is a big promise, which is why I made the subtitle A Beginning, because <laughs> I thought I was... Pretty grand claim. Um, I think we can do a lot better. I think we can get a lot closer than we are. And I don't know if we can ever completely get to a point where we have ended unfair, unexamined bias. But I know that we can improve a lot on where we are yeah. now.
0: What book did you set out to write?
1: Interesting question. I... I set out to write a pretty straightforward book of science. Hmm. I thought I would do all of the research I could possibly do about what changes people's behavior. That's what I was really looking for. I I wanted to find the research that pointed me in the direction of actual change, like measurable change, and not just in how people feel, but how people actually act toward one one another. That's what I was Hmm. really interested in. And I thought it would really be like a reporting project. That was the book that I set out to write.
0: Do you feel like you accomplished that?
1: <laughs> you know, the the book that I think I actually wrote was a, was a very different book. I mean, yeah. I still went that scientific route, but it became much more personal. And the there the sort of distinction between what i was reporting on and what i was experiencing and reflecting on and how it was affecting me um started to blur and so i think it ended up becoming a more i think it ended up becoming a deeper book as a result and a more vulnerable book and hopefully you know hopefully a richer book for the reader because it ended up becoming personal as well as scientific and um Mm reportorial
0: so then in your words what is the book what is the end of bias the beginning
1: i see the book as my best effort to pull together our current understanding of how people can change to become more fair more just more humane more honestly, more able to see reality. Because yeah. what, I, what I kind of came to understand over the course of working on this project was that unconscious bias actually prevents us from seeing reality. It blocks us from having a relationship with the world as it is. And a relationship with other people as they actually are, and maybe even a relationship with ourselves as we are, mm-hmm. because there's internalized bias as well. And so, that, you know, that's that's sort of what I that's what I hope the book is able to do to, to give people kind of tools and ideas and reflections and a place to start and a and a and a place you know a reason to hope that change yeah. is possible
0: so I love that you use the word hope because one of the things that attracted me to the book in the first place and, and just to give you a little bit of background on this show um, so I started it uh, about 70 years ago um with the goal of making personal development very practical so the idea was there's all of these things that we talk about sort of at a high level but what do we know actually works what does the science say works why does it work so on and so forth um, and I wanted to to both for myself learn all of those things but then in that process translate it to the listener over the last seven years I've started to take a much bigger interest um, less in the like here's what you need to do for yourself and more in here's what society needs to do for us uh, because that's th- that that affects so much of what you're able to do on an individual level but that's not a very hopeful place to be because you start to realize very quickly, oh, these are very big problems and there's nothing I can do about it. So how do you approach something like bias? That is, is it, it's unconscious in a lot of ways. Like how do you tackle something that's unconscious and have any degree of hope that something's going to change there?
1: You know, I think part of the issue is the term unconscious bias, because when you call it unconscious bias, it almost sounds like something that is beyond our capacity to understand or be aware of. I've actually come to prefer the term unexamined bias Mm
0: -hmm. because
1: we can become aware of this. We We can examine what's happening in our own minds and what our own kind of split second responses are and our automatic reactions to people are. And I like the term unexamined bias because I think it also suggests the next step, which is to mm-hmm. examine it, you know right um, so there's a sense of forward momentum in that way of thinking about it I I mean I feel I think your question your question was how do you how do you find hope in this in this yeah. area
0: in something that feels so big
1: that feels so big you know I I found hope in the stories that I uncovered of actual change. Mm. And, and in the fact that those that change just didn't happen out of nowhere, it happened because very specific things were put in place, whether we're talking about, you know, a sports team in India, a cricket league that was designed to try to reduce caste prejudice. Mm. And the, you know, the players were specifically put on teams with players of other castes in order to test out this theory called contact theory, which basically um, holds that if you put people together who are equal status, and you have them work collaboratively on a shared goal, this starts to reduce stereotyping and prejudice. And so that, that, that sports team was designed really to test out that hypothesis, and they found that it, it worked. When, when you put men of different castes on the same cricket team, and you have them spend tons of time together and play together and play together and game after game, ultimately it changes how they feel about each other. It changes how they behave toward one another. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's just one of the many, many examples that I, that I describe. but I, so I find hope in the fact that we can actually see change. We, We can see people behave in more humane ways toward one another.
0: So that, um, so there is, uh, well, okay, before I jump into that, because uh, it, it dives a little bit into the topic of racism, could you sort of create the separation for us? Like, what is the the real difference between bias and racism? Are they the same thing, but one's applied to race? Or are they related at all? Like, w- could you lay that out for us?
1: Yeah, I mean, un- un- unconscious or unexamined bias is this kind of general category that describes this the the phenomenon that I'll describe which is basically that we we live in a culture, we learn categories of people, social identities that are relevant in that culture. And those are different depending on what culture you're in. In this culture, race, ethnicity, religion, gender, these are all really salient categories. So we learn the categories. And as a consequence of living in that culture, we absorb a lot of information about those categories. Stereotypes associations beliefs we sort of absorb all of this cultural knowledge that that is connected to those categories and then when we encounter a person who we recognize as belonging to one of those categories all of that information that we've stored in our memory starts to influence our reaction so it can influence how we feel how we think and that can be any category it could be disability it could be gender identity. It could be sexual orientation. It could be race, ethnicity, religion. I mean, there are all of these different categories that are kind of Mm -hmm. present in our culture. So racism in particular, uh, I might distinguish it from unconsciously, you know, uh, racial bias that's unconscious. I think broadly racism is the idea, first of all, that people can be organized according to categories called race. Which is a human idea. It's a human invention. It's not like a natural, naturally occurring right, thing. Race. Right. So first of all, that humans can even be organized according to something called race, and then those groups exist in some kind of hierarchy, with white at the top. That I would just, I would say, racism is that kind of ideology. Unconscious racial bias or unexamined racial bias, I think, is the. The absorption of those ideas or stereotypes about different racial groups and then, like I was saying before, then when when we encounter a person who belongs to one of those groups, having that information that we've stored start to influence our behavior or our reactions in ways that maybe we're not even aware of. Maybe, Maybe we're not conscious of, maybe they even conflict with our actual values. Of egalitarianism,
0: this study they did in France, where they had a number of uh, posters, essentially with individuals of different Arabic cultures, um, where they had a photo of the person and then some sort of like one-word descriptor of their personality, so like hopeful or zany or, or something like that, um, and they they put all of these up around a medical center for some period of time with the idea of seeing does exposure to the idea of like individuals within this group reduce the bias towards helping them. Uh, And so later on, after they had removed the posters, they had actors come in and drop things out of their purse by accident or something that like someone close by could, could step in and help. And they found that the group that were exposed to these posters um, we're more likely to to jump in and help
1: that's one of the that's one of the core anchoring studies in i can not remember if it's chapter nine or chapter ten of my book um the are Bra- you think you're talking about the Brouwer era uh, Brower study at all in France of the arab yeah. Arab posters
0: yeah so phenomenal study uh, the first time i I'd, I'd sort of um really seen it written down but it brings up this idea of contact theory that you just mentioned where access to sort of like the individuals of a group makes it harder to hold on to those, those uh, unconscious or unexamined, excuse me, stereotypes that you might have. Could you talk a little bit more about how that works out?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So that, that study is a really fascinating one because what the researchers were testing it was whether when you increase the complexity with which you see a group that can reduce stereotyping you know one Mm -hmm. of the one of the kind of ideas i think that's floating around a lot is that if you want to reduce stereotyping what you need to do is portray a you know a particular group in really positive ways and that that will that'll reduce stereotyping because people will start to see that group in more positive ways if they're portrayed in more positive ways um, right. but what the study of the Arabic, um, of the posters of people of Arab origin shows is actually that what was more powerful was showing posters where people are, are portrayed as being very different from one another. So the posters had, a, you know, a person of Arab origin being described as optimistic and someone else being described as pessimistic and someone else being described as stingy and somebody else being described as friendly. And so there was this like huge mix of people, um, both positive and negative. And the impact that that had was that people who saw those posters behaved in less discriminatory ways. and the the kind of hypothesis of the researchers is that the more you see a group as being very diverse within itself, the harder it is to stereotype that group. And so, I mean, what I think is if if we really want to tackle stereotyping, like from the perspective of the media, what we need to do is show a lot more different kinds of people from every group, um, not just show like someone from group A and someone from group B and someone from group C, but like 30 people from group A who are all totally right. different from each other. That'll help us start to see reality again, back to this idea of seeing reality, which is that the group that I don't belong to is just as complex and nuanced and diverse within itself as the group that I do belong to.
0: Right. So th- this whole thing sort of like blows my thinking wide open. I'm glad I have you here because one of the things that really jumped out at me with this, uh, this idea, I had been in my own uh, uh, work with this show, moving away from a focus on the individual. Mm. I felt that one of the biggest issues that leads to to, um, people not being willing to get political or to do whatever things would change society as a whole is how much our culture focuses on the individual or the family unit and these sort of like smaller individual bubbles that we manufacture. Um, And uh, so I had been moving away from this, the idea of the individual and, and focusing much more on like, how can we think of society as a whole yeah but here is this very clear study that actually the idea of individuals still matters still is incredibly important and can have this massive effect of of changing culture on a a large scale do you happen to know and it's okay if you don't have anything off the top of your mind but are there other examples of this kind of thing like whether it's regarding contact theory or just the idea that individualism still matters
1: yes yes I I really understand where you're coming from because I've struggled with the same thing. And mm. while I was working on this book, I had a dark night of the soul at one point while I was working on the book where I thought, you know, like you, I started out really focusing on individual change. And the deeper I went into the material, the more I could see the structural and institutional and sort of systemic forces that were pushing hard against any kind of individual change making a difference and i remember i woke up in the middle of the night one night and i was sort of tearing my hair out thinking why why even focus on the individual at all when there are these massive right. forces pushing in the other direction and is it even dishonest for us to be focusing on the individual and encouraging people as individuals but what I realized and what I came to see in the research as well is that the individual matters profoundly because who writes policies, Hmm. who creates laws, who passes laws, who supports policies, who enforces them, who changes structures, it's people, it's individuals. And so the change that happens in an individual's mind and heart can have massive consequences, not only like as voters, you know, and as members of organizations and communities, but as leaders. I mean, I'm thinking about these profound examples of leaders who had some kind of change of heart or new way of seeing things. And like there was a, a French CEO I profile in my book, uh, Jean-Marco Mansalato. And he came to really understand that women were being held back unfairly at his law firm. And because he, he understood this deeply and he saw it, he was able to institute all of these policy changes that completely transformed how the company operated and how people were able to experience work and be included at work. And it ended up benefiting men and people from all sorts of different ethnic groups as well, because the policies in general were moving toward greater fairness Mm. and so i've seen a lot of cases where an individual a very motivated individual can make a huge change
0: yeah so okay diving a little bit deeper into that let's talk about you as an individual um so you are a, a journalist by trade um you tell this story, uh, both in the book and and in a number of podcast interviews, of your own sort of like inciting incident or or the the thing that sort of inspired you to look deeper into to this direction. Um, and essentially, you were trying to get a piece published and just could not get it placed anywhere. You decided to uh, submit it under J.D. Nordell, and and all of a sudden, people were interested in and. In, it it really raised a lot of questions for you. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what that experience was like. Um, But I also really want to hear from you, what was it like writing as JD? Like, how did that change your own uh, uh, writing and and your voice and so on and so forth?
1: That's a really interesting question. I mean, the experience was very uh, shocking to me. I did not expect that sending out a piece using a more masculine sounding name would make a difference. It, I really just did it on a whim. And when it worked, and then when it worked again, and again, in multiple, you know, cases, I, I was surprised. Um, I was, dis, I was really disheartened, to be honest, it yeah. made me feel discouraged. Um, simultaneously, you know, while I was simultaneously placing pieces in like high profile publications, it made me feel discouraged because it made me feel like oh i can't huh okay i guess the way to succeed is to conceal who i am and to try to appear as someone else who is going to be given the benefit of the doubt what i found when i was writing as jd was not that the the pieces themselves changed because when i was actually you know writing essays or writing articles i wasn't I wasn't thinking about myself as JD. I was just writing. Mm-hmm. But where I, where I did feel really different was when I was communicating with editors, when I was sending emails as JD. I felt really different. I felt like really free to be kind of brusque and mm-hmm. and not hedge as much. I didn't feel like I had to use as many exclamation marks Um I just kind of felt like I I didn't have to be as ingratiating. And I don't right. think I realized how ingratiating I had tried to be until like it was removed as a necessity. Yeah.
0: Did you did you feel that way because of how they were responding or what was it that like changes that in your mind?
1: It's a good question. I I'm thinking back because it was this was a long time ago. This was like Yeah. 15 years ago at least um I think it gave me like a confidence that I wasn't going to be punished for this behavior and I wasn't punished for you know just being really short and kind of snappy and brusque um Whereas I think in the past I had been, I had learned as like women in this culture learn, you know, as we grow up in this culture that like in order to be, in order to sort of make nice socially, there's, there's a lot of emotional work that has to go into it because there are prescriptive stereotypes about how women should behave. And when you veer, you know, when you veer outside of those stereotypes People get upset. And that's something that I experienced in the workplace a lot. Um, later on, you know, there were times when I was freelance writing and then I was also working in the corporate world um, for agencies and marketing and things like that. And I noticed frequently that if I if I veered too much outside of kind of the lane of stereotypically feminine, you know, acceptable behavior, people don't like it. People didn't like it. It came back to haunt me.
0: That's it for part one of my conversation with Jessica Nordell. And I want to hear your thoughts. Did this episode or Jessica's experiences speak to you in any way? Have you experienced something similar that you're willing to share? I'd actually love to invite you on the show to have that conversation and just talk about how bias has affected you personally, whether as the person receiving it or how your own biases have affected you. Head over to Instagram, find the podcast at tinyleaps, and send me a message. I'd love to hear your story and potentially bring you on the show to talk about it. And while you wait for part two, which comes out tomorrow, by the way, uh, be sure to pick up a copy of Jessica's book It's called The End of Bias, A Beginning. The link is in the description, or of course, you can find it wherever you get your books. And I'd also heavily, heavily recommend that you subscribe to her newsletter titled Who We Are to Each Other. There's a link for that in the description as well. As always, thank you so much for being here. My name is Greg Clunis. Be kind to each other. And remember that all big changes come from the tiny leaps you take every
1: every day.